This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Today's scripture is from Psalm 130. I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew back or somewhere close by. And if you don't have one of your own, we'd love you to take that as a gift. Psalm 130, first one. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Audra. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Glad you could be with us. Uh, Before we get into uh, this uh, sermon, we're going to talk about hope and hope uh, Jesus brings. Just a couple of uh, quick announcements I want to share with you all. One, uh, you know, uh, the mask thing is back, which I know we're all really, really excited about. It's like our favorite thing. Culturally, you know, and inside churches, like we love to talk about these things, and it's a lot of fun for us. Um, I want to share with you just uh, briefly uh, kind of our take on why uh, we've asked for people to wear masks in our uh, kind of indoor spaces. Uh, And it's pretty simple for us. Our policy throughout this whole season has been when the local government asks us to do something, uh, we submit to that unless it asks us to violate scripture or sin, sin against God in some clear way. And uh, we don't see the mask mandate as anything that's asking us to sin against God in any clear way. And, and we get that from all over the Bible where we've been called as Christians to submit to the governing authorities. Uh, the Bible's very, very clear about it, uh, except when governing authorities are asking us to rebel or sin against God in, in some way or do something that would be violating clear instructions from God's word. And so uh, for us, the, the heart of submitting to the local government uh, is not for us kind of a political thing. It's a Christian thing uh, that we're called to do. And that command in the New Testament was written in a time where the local government was corrupt, where the emperor hated Christianity, where there's a lot of people opposed to it. And so the things being asked and done weren't good. If there was ever a thing that we were asked to do that was in clear violation to scripture, uh, we would certainly choose to obey God rather than human beings. Uh, we don't see this as one of those cases. And it's also an opportunity for us to love our community by doing our best uh, to help minimize the spread of COVID as new variants keep coming up and to maintain hospital capacity, ventilator capacity for those in our community who need it, especially the vulnerable. And along those lines, uh, I want to thank you uh, for your prayers. We've had a number of people who have been in the hospital over the past couple weeks who have been really, really sick, and your prayers have been really encouraging. And so while I want to ask you for charity and grace with the mask, you don't have to agree with everything. You don't have to uh, think we're making all the right decisions. We're just asking that we'd show charity and grace towards one another as we do our best to lead through a a really complex time. And so asking for that, but also thanking you. I want to give a couple updates on some prayer things. Last Sunday, Jason was here and was sharing about Chris Gillespie, one of our, our executive pastor. He went to the hospital with a heart failure, unrelated to COVID and uh, was in the hospital for a few days, very substantial heart, 
uh, heart failure, um, incredibly high blood pressure, enlarged heart, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things going on. He was discharged on Tuesday. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, he has kind of a, a path of kind of rehab, cardio rehab ahead of him. Uh, so we ask for continued prayer for him and his family, uh, but huge answers to prayer. He was in a really hard spot, and uh, God has been healing and continues to heal, so we're thankful for that, thankful for all the doctors and their wisdom, and thankful for your prayers. Um, also, we sent out an email this week giving an update about Chris, but also sharing about Tom Granis, who's a member of our church here in the Highlands, works on security team, has been very involved in our building committee and a lot of things. Uh, he went to the hospital on Monday, uh, went into the ICU, and was put on a ventilator because of COVID. And uh, by God's grace, on Thursday, uh, he was taken off the ventilator. His oxygen was restoring. So they've been able to take him off the ventilator, positively take him off the ventilator, and put him on uh, other kind of heavy oxygen flow. Um, so he's back conscious again. And we're so, so grateful for your prayers, praying for Tom, praying for his wife, Jennifer. Uh, they have two kids, praying for their family. So just thank you. Encouraging answers to prayer. And we'd invite you to keep praying. Uh, I think God has just shown up again and again with just showing us his, uh, his power and his healing grace. And so I want to encourage you to keep praying and thank you uh, for that. Uh, so again, thanks and praise God for those answers to prayer. One more announcement. Um, as we, every year when we're kind of wrapping up the calendar year, as we enter into Advent and this sort of Christian year, we're also closing a calendar year. And we take time every year to talk about end of the year giving. Uh, which is an opportunity for us to, as a church, try to end the year in a financially healthy position so that we can continue to do the ministry and pursue the mission God's given us. And so for us, finances and stewardship of our finances, generosity towards God, towards the mission of God, and towards the city is a part of Christian discipleship. It's a part of following the way of Jesus and the generous love of God. Uh, it's something that in churches can be really stigmatized, that people don't talk about it because Things have been abused in a lot of ways throughout history, and we get that. And so if you're new to Christianity, you're like, man, I knew churches always talk about money. We get that, but we don't often talk about it. We probably ought to more often because it's really connected to what we love and what we treasure in our heart. Uh, but we want to be a place that's just communicating honestly where we're at. So as we're closing this fiscal year, we're about $60,000 uh, year-to-date behind budget on our uh, fiscal year. And, uh, and so we've set a goal for the month of December for $500,000, which might seem like a lot. Our, our budget, annual budget, is about $2.5 million. And that supports the churches that we've planted overseas, the church planters that we do, the local missions partnerships here, and the mission God's given us here in this city, in this church to make disciples. So we have over 20 staff members. We do a lot of work here in the city, a lot of work to try to equip people to grow as disciples and to live on mission in this city. And, uh, and we need financial health to do that well. And so that doesn't have to be like rocket science to think about that. And we want to be a church as a family that's just talking about that without stigma, and without these kind of like emotional attachments, just this is what God's called us to. And I want to invite you as we try to end the year in a financially healthy position to consider giving an end of the year gift to help us do that, uh, to help us do that. And so what that could be for you, maybe you've never given to a local church. Again, if you're new to Park Church, we're not asking anything and would not expect anything from you. But if this is your church family, uh, we would ask that you, where you're able to, contribute financially to the mission that God's given us. Uh, whether that's maybe for the first time ever, saying, I've never done that, but I would love to pray. You're about to get hit up by every nonprofit you've ever been connected to on Tuesday. Giving Tuesday, you're going to get like, you know, 30 emails. If, if you're like me, I just get a lot of emails. And we love the nonprofits and the different work happening in the city. Love it, support it. Uh, we would ask for you to consider uh, giving an end-of-the-year gift to help support us in the mission God's given us. The past year and a half have been 
financially like challenging for a lot of organizations and a lot of churches, including ours in some ways. And so again, we don't want to shy away from that, but we just ask as a church family for us to lean into the opportunity. So maybe it's the first time you've ever given, or maybe it's giving above and beyond your normal giving, but it helps us do the mission that God's given us. Uh, even this fall, you know, we, Ryan sent out an email. We had over 100 people go through our foundations class. That's 100 people that are pursuing membership this fall. And so while our resources, kind of financial resources, are down a little bit, trying to make cuts to make things work, the opportunity for ministry is growing. Uh, we've been able to do a lot to try to equip our gospel communities to love and serve the city in a number of different ways this year. And so I want to encourage you to pray about that and consider how God would call you and invite you and lead you to give. We don't want anybody to give under obligation or a kind of uh, burden. Now, that's not the heart. The heart is in response to God's love, joyful generosity. And so what you feel joyful about, what you feel kind of your heart can get excited about participating in, we'd ask for you to pray uh, that God would help you uh, to follow his leadership in that. Um, that's it for my announcements. A lot of stuff. And we got a really exciting uh, passage to get into. So I want to take a minute and pray. We are entering into our four Sundays in Advent. And the four Sundays in Advent are kind of time where we as a church with other Christians around the world and throughout history kind of walk into a season that's marked by tension, where our experience in this life, we are paying attention to the dissonance, we're paying attention to the tension, we're paying attention to the, the pains in this life. Advent isn't early Christmas, right? When you think about Target or Walmart or department stores, they decorate for Christmas back in like October, you know, maybe September these days. They're like, you know, the kind of consumeristic, materialistic, let's get your money. For Christians, Advent isn't like stretching Christmas earlier. It's preparation and anticipation. It's sitting in the tension. It's why it's one of my favorite seasons of the year, because it's so real. It's so honest. It's not kind of cliche, kind of like happy-go-lucky joy and generic joy or optimism. It's honest about pain. It's honest about dissonance. It's honest about disappointment, frustration. It's honest about unmet expectations. It's honest. And we enter into that space to be honest and in that space of honesty, to learn to put our hope increasingly in Jesus and what he accomplished when he came as a baby and what he will do when he comes again in his second coming. And so we're praying that this season will be a time for us to grow in our hope and our peace and our joy and our love as we learn to look to Jesus together. So let's pray and ask him to do that among us. Jesus, we come right now and we need you, Lord. Uh, we need you to meet us in this place of tension every person in this room, every person joining us online is feeling tension in areas of life. Disappointment, frustrations, feeling disillusioned in areas of life. Maybe it's with relationships or maybe it's with their vocation or their job. Maybe it's with the church. Maybe it's with family. We feel these tensions. We feel these expectations and these disappointments. And I pray, Jesus, that you would meet us in that space Meet us in those moments of pain that we learn to cry out to you from the depths. We cry out to you from disappointment, cry out to you from a place of disillusionment, that we cry out to you from a place of despair, and that we learn to increasingly put our hope in you, in your presence, in your character, and in your promises. And so would you help us this morning to resituate and to reorient our hope, that our hope would increasingly be in you, the one sure foundation. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I, I don't know if you're anything like me, I have like song lyrics that, that make it into my mind all the time. So I'll see 
a sign on the side of the road or I'll see a person or hear a phrase or something and just song lyrics come into my mind. And so I think often uh, with my kids, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of the song. And I'll, you know, like, hey, Siri, play the, hold on, don't play. You know, uh, you, know it's, uh, you know, hey, hey, you know, hey, Sally, uh, play play whatever, right? And I just start playing songs. I'm like, oh, this is one I used to always listen to. And this is one I like show my kids and be so excited because the song in it, kind of the whole genre is like this huge spectrum. Maybe it's Nirvana or Neil Diamond or DMX or Eminem or Pink Floyd or the Beatles, like all these different like songs that lyrics come into my mind. And often some of them, I'll be like, hey, play this. And I'm listening to them. I'm like, I love this song. And all of a sudden the lyrics take a turn that you're like, I never paid attention to the words of that song. And I'm like, let's stop that song. And I just kind of realized, oh, not all of these lyrics are appropriate for all of my children in their ages right now. And it just kind of hits me over and over that I had listened to songs, memorized songs, sang songs, jammed to songs, got pumped up to songs, cried to songs, that a lot of them I hadn't paid attention to what they were about. I maybe knew the lyrics, but I hadn't internalized or really paid attention to the lyrics. And potentially for me, the chief culprit of being familiar with a song and not paying attention to it, for me, are Advent and Christmas songs. It's because I grew up around them all the time. They're in the department stores, they're playing in the house, they're on the radio, and I was very familiar with all these Christmas songs, but had never really, for most of them, stopped to pay attention to what they were about. So I remember once, it was about 15 years ago, um, my wife and I, we lived in Chicago, and uh, she was out of town with some friends for the weekend, and, uh, and I had a professor that emailed me, and he said, Hey, Gary, um, how about, would you like to come over to our house for dinner and give you something to do instead of pining away while your wife's out of town? And I thought, number one, that's kind. Number two, who says pining? Like, what a weird word. That's like a seminary professor-like thing to say. And, uh, and I'm like, all right, pining away. What does that even mean? And I remember it just immediately hit me. The only time I had ever heard the word pining was in the song, Oh, Holy Night. It's like the only place I had ever even heard the word. It says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. And I just remember thinking, I have no idea what that means. So I'm like looking up, you know, kind of what does pining mean? And so here's the definition of pining. It says, to suffer a mental and physical decline, especially because of a broken heart. To suffer a mental and physical decline, especially because of a broken heart. And where does that broken heart come from? It comes from this affection for something that is somehow this unmet expectation. You love something and there's something that is prohibiting you from experiencing the fullness of that thing that you love. In that gap between what you desire and what you're experiencing, that brokenhearted gap, there is a sense that it can lead us to a place of mental and physical decline. And so a sort of sub-definition of it is this. It's to miss and long for the return of something. If you're going to pine for something, you're missing something and you're longing for the return of that thing that's causing you to kind of like waste away in pain. And I remember that lyric for me all of a sudden unlocked Oh Holy Night. Like the whole song just like lit up and it pierced me. I was in a season of life where I was uh, studying nonstop. I was working a couple of jobs just trying to make ends meet. In the midst of just trying to like get through life and do the next thing that needed to be done, I lost sight of Jesus. I lost sight of meaning. I lost sight of purpose. I lost sight of joy. I was just plowing ahead, doing the next thing that needed to be done. And my soul was pining. I was wasting away. I was withering internally. And something about that line and that word just hit me like, that's how I feel. And so I was thinking about that song, Long May the World and Sin and Error 
pining, pining, until he appeared. Until he, Jesus, appeared. That word appeared is where we get the word advent. Until he came. Until he appeared and the soul, the inner self, felt its worth. The worth of the appearing of Christ. The value of the appearing of Christ. And what does it bring? Does the song says, a thrill of hope. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. And I remember when that lyric hit me, it's like I just started crying. That's what I wanted. I wanted hope. I wanted a sense like there's something to look forward to, not just like the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Life had lost its joy, had lost its sense of hope, had lost its thrill, and I remember just being pierced by that. And it made me just realize the need for hope in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of disillusionment, in the midst of despair. And that's what we want to see this morning, is that Advent for us is an invitation to hope in the midst of a really disillusioned world. Uh, We live in the middle of a very disillusioned world, and Advent is a season for us to regain a sense of hope. My prayer for us has been that we'd be a people that experience not just like some vague, generic hope, but a thrill of hope in the person and in the promises of Jesus. There is an opportunity for you to live today, today, and I mean that literally, today, with a sense of joy and meaning and purpose and hope not a sort of Pollyannish optimism, but a real honesty about the tension, but a hope that is anchored deeper than the circumstances that we long for or experience or the dreams that we have in life and the unmet expectations. And I think Jesus wants to do that in us today. And so here's what we're going to do. I want to unpack this really in two parts. And the first one is simply this. I want to talk about how disillusionment is a doorway to a deeper hope. Disillusionment is a doorway to a deeper hope. And then secondly, we'll see how that deeper hope is found in the person and in the promises of Jesus. So disillusionment is a doorway to deeper hope. Um, I want you to see this in Psalm 130. We're not going to unpack this whole psalm. Uh, We'll get to this in a couple years, uh, Psalm 130. That's, That's literal. It'll be probably early summer 2023. Look forward to that one. Hopefully you'll forget all of these things by that point. We can just re-preach the sermon. It'll make that whole week super chill. They're like, I already did this. They don't remember. Um, Psalm 130. Uh, This psalm has resonated with me in so many different spaces because of this first line. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths. Out of the depths. The psalmist, it's a psalm of ascents. It was sung by the people of Israel as they're moving towards Jerusalem for various festivals. And as they moved towards Jerusalem, they would be singing these different songs of ascent as they would ascend towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. And this song met them in a place of despair. It met them in a place of pain. And for different people, it might have looked different. As a collective whole, the nation of Israel had experienced pain and despair through their own life as a nation in a number of different ways. They had been oppressed by different foreign powers. They had been exiled. They had been plundered. They had experienced kind of displacement in different ways. And they had all of these kind of expectations that they were supposed to be this nation that walked with God and justice and righteousness and peace and love and grace and that they would have a kingdom where they were with with God and with one another in this kingdom of righteousness and they'd be a light to the world. But their felt experience, if that's their expectation, their felt experience was far less than that. And in the gap between your expectation and your experience, that's disappointment. When you have an expectation that life is going to be a certain way and what your experience is less than what you expected, less than what you hoped for, you experience disappointment. And disappointment is the foundation of disillusionment. Here's a definition for disillusionment. Disillusionment is a feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery, 
that something is not as, as, as good as one believed it to be. Disillusionment is a feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. And so the people of Israel are going through life with these expectations about what being the people of God should mean. They had these promises of what God was going to do, and in their felt experience, there's a gap. And that gap led them to pain. And, and the psalm was going to talk about what led to that gap, and it was their own rebellion against God. They understood that. So from the depths, they're pleading for God for mercy and for forgiveness. And the experience of Israel is, in a very true sense, a microcosm of humanity's experience. All of the pain, all of the disappointment, all of the unmet expectations are a result, not necessarily of a sin that you did, but of human rebellion and the brokenness that exists on this world. Because of human rebellion, there is a experience of pain in this world that leads all of us to different moments of dissatisfaction. And those moments of dissatisfaction can give way eventually to disillusionment. So if you think about an unmet expectation, the pain you feel there, at some point you're disappointed so many times that you give up even the ability to hope. Like it's hard to get excited about anything when you're disappointed over and over and over again, right? COVID is like full of all these false summits for us, right? Like we're almost through, you know, a couple more months, a couple more months, and here we are in December of 20, almost December of 2021. It's like still going on. Still got people going to the hospitals, people fighting for their life still happening in some significant ways. Life is full of all kinds of disappointments, but it's not confined to the past year and a half. This is a human experience. I want to read this. It's from a guy named Walker Percy, and Walker Percy was an author, um, kind of a quasi-philosopher. He wrote a number of books, but one is called Lost in the Cosmos, and this is 1985, okay? So 1985, think about computers, kind of the home computers just arriving on the scene, and, uh, and this is sort of his experience, and as he's talking about the experience of disappointment. She says this, the, pe- the peculiar predicament of the present-day self surely came to pass as a consequence of the disappointment of the high expectations of the self as it entered the age of science and technology. He's going to talk about how when science had all these promises in the 80s and medicine was making advancements, we were finding ways to kind of medicate a number of different diseases, a number of different issues, emotional things, and those are good advances in science. And there was advances in technology with the personal computer, but there's this sense that these advancements are going to lead to more stability, longer life, more recreation, more free time, less work hours, just a better life. It was going to lead to progress for humanity. And so he said it gave these really high expectations for people, and then they experienced, when those expectations weren't met, disappointment. So he says, dazzled by the overwhelming credentials of science, the beauty and elegance of the scientific method, the triumph of modern medicine over physical ailments, and the technological transformation of the very world itself, the self finds itself, in the end, disappointed by the failure of science and technique in those very sectors of life which had been most, which had been its main source of ordinary satisfaction in past ages. And he quotes um, somebody who is a New Yorker, a columnist, a writer for the New Yorker named John Cheever. He says, John Cheever said, the main emotion of the adult American who has all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. The main emotion of the adult American who has all the advantages of wealth and education and culture is disappointment. John Cheever famously is born in like the early 1900s, died around 1980. 
he was a Pulitzer Prize winning author who lived in the suburbs of New York, but he had lived most of his life in sustenance living, just making ends meet. And then eventually made some money through his writing, moved to New York, moved out to the suburbs to get more space for his family, and became kind of somebody who wrote again and again and again about the disappointments of suburban life. And this is in the 50s, 60s, 70s, post-World War II. All these promises, like as the suburban sprawl began to happen, all these people had these expectations of what life was finally going to be after the war and the economy's growing and we now have a home, we have a land, and we've got our picket fence, the kind of quintessential American dream. We finally have it here. And he was watching people in the suburban experience, experience disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And so Walker Percy, talking about this, goes through this litany of disappointments. He talks about work is disappointing. Marriage and family life are disappointing. School is disappointing. Politics is disappointing. The churches are disappointing. Social life is disappointing. Because we put all these hopes and expectations in them. Because there's something good about marriage. There's something good about work. There's something good about social life. There's something good about government. And we have these expectations that grow within us. And then the experience is less than that. And we find ourselves experiencing disappointment. And so C.S. Lewis, if you get a chance this week... It's really like four pages from Mere Christianity on hope. Uh, Really, I probably should have just sat up here in a chair and read this and called it good. Um, It is, to me, one of the most powerful kind of explanations of what I think is our modern moment and our experience. And and I want to read this from Lewis from his chapter on hope. He said, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is something we grasp at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. What Lewis says is we jump into relationships, we jump into job, we jump into creation or um, recreation or experiences or entertainment or whatever it is with this sense of something lights up. We, we see something here that feels good, it's attractive, and that's not wrong. But when we actually experience it, it falls short. And that's not just when a marriage falls apart or your job is painfully abusive or a, a kind of like a really toxic environment. It's saying even in the best cases, it never quite lives up to what we want it to be. Because these things can't give us what we're looking for in them. They can't give us ultimate hope. They can't give us ultimate hope. And so we find ways to respond to that. We start chasing after different things. And Lewis gives a couple of different um, kind of ways that we tend to pursue this and respond to this. The first way Lewis talks about it is he calls it the fool's way. And the fool's way is where we just keep trying. We go from thing to thing, relationship to relationship, vocation to vocation, job to job, house to house, city to city, church to church. Like, keep, we keep asking. And he calls it the fool's way because at the end of the day, if you pay attention or are honest and just stop for a second, it feels kind of idiotic. Like, how many times do we have to, like, try to find joy from something in the created world and it disappoints us before we finally learn that things in the created world can't ultimately satisfy us? 
Lewis calls it the fool's way because we run from thing to thing to thing to thing over and over and over again. And at some point, that, that runs its course. Often it runs its course when you've finally attained the thing that you thought would give you hope. Uh, there's a famous story by Dallas Willard uh, where Dallas Willard's talking about kind of people who don't end their lives well, that maybe they had all this like great life and they did all these things, but at some point their life just kind of collapses at the end of life. And he's talking about why he thinks that happens. And a lot of it is about disappointment and unfulfilled hopes and dreams. And what he compares it to is a greyhound race. Have you ever kind of seen a greyhound race or heard about them? You know, they have all these dogs line up and they, you know, open up the gates and these dogs chase this electric rabbit around a track, right? At least they used to, I don't know. And so they're like chasing this electric rabbit. And, and Dallas Willard tells a story about when this electric rabbit broke down and the dogs like got it, you know? And, and like all the dogs like fighting over this dumb, like stuffed, flavorless rabbit. And, uh, and it's like this experience of like, he's like, that's our life. Like we chase and we chase and we chase and we chase and we chase. And when you finally get the thing you thought was gonna give you joy, it's so disappointing. And you can hear about it again and again in people's experience and you felt it in your own experience. And that's what Lewis calls the disillusioned life. The disillusioned man is what he calls it, where you finally said, there's nothing to be excited about. And you kind of settle into boring life. Family's gonna be boring. My job is going to be boring. My friendships are going to be so-so. I'm just going to kind of like numb and medicate and like live the life I can live. And a lot of people in our age have settled into a boring life. Is there another option? Is it either this sort of naive optimism, like life's going to be amazing, this sort of Pollyannish optimism about all the things that life is going to be, or this sort of disillusioned self that's just like nothing's exciting, I'm not going to hope in anything, nothing's going to get me kind of like excited about living anymore because of all the disappointment I've experienced. Are those the only two options? I, I, don't, I don't think so. And I think what Lewis offers, and I think what the psalm offers is another option. And that's where I want to see that disillusionment itself can be a doorway to a deeper hope. It can be a gift. It can be a gift. If you think about what is disappointing you right now, is it your friendships? Is it your job? Is it your marriage, your family, your stage of life? Unfulfilled expectations, unfulfilled longings for a family? When I say, what are you disappointed in right now? Politics? The state of our world? What are you disappointed in? What if that disappointment didn't have to be crushing, but it was an invitation to a deeper kind of joy? What if it was an invitation to pay attention to the reality that the things in this world cannot deliver on the, on the kind of hopes and dreams we want them to give us, that they can't fulfill that longing for hope. And if that's the case, if, if that's the case, instead of it being crushing, it can be a doorway to a deeper hope and hope in the person and the promises of Jesus. And that's what the psalmist does in the passage. I think it's stunning, and I want you to see it. We're going to focus in on verses, really on verse 5, um, but also 5 and 6. Look at what the psalmist does. From this place of crying out from a moment of despair, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Be attentive to my cries for mercy. Out of this place of crying from a moment of disappointment, pain, despair, longing, says this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. Uh, there are two Hebrew words that are used to kind of uh, communicate this idea that we call hope. And, and they're both here. The word for wait here is this word kahav, and it's a kind of a word of like waiting with anticipation. And then the word hope here is this word yachal. Uh, can you all say yachal? You have to do it with that. Yachal. 
I just want to hear you try that guttural sound. Yachal. Um, it's this experience of waiting. Yachal is just waiting for something. And kahav is this waiting with a sense of tension as you're struggling to hang on. You're struggling to hang on. And so it's not a sort of hope that's like, I hope this happens someday. It's not like, I hope the weather's nice tomorrow, or I hope the Broncos win, or I hope whatever it is. It's not like this sort of like, I hope this thing that I have no idea whether or not it'll happen. I just like kind of wish it would. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is waiting on something with confidence. It's standing in the tension. It's holding fast when it's difficult. So even the word kahav and this idea of, uh, it comes from this word of accord and this tension and this idea of when you're waiting for the Lord, you're, you're, you're fighting to hang on in the midst of pain, in the midst of reasons to doubt, when things aren't panning out the way you wanted to, when there are disappointments, when you feel difficulty or challenges, when things aren't kind of coming at the time or in the way that you wanted to, but you're hanging on. That's hope. You're hanging on. What are you hanging on to? This passage is really clear. Look at it in verse 5. I wait for the Lord. For Him. I'm holding on to Him. I'm not holding on to my circumstances changing. I'm not holding on to everything going the way I want it to do. I'm not holding on to all of my dreams and ambitions finally coming to fruition. I'm holding on to Him. That the idea of biblical hope is when we are waiting with confidence in the person and in the promises of God. It's waiting with confidence on the person and the promises of God. You see it right here in the passage. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Yes, more than watchmen for the morning. The image that the psalmist gives is these images of these watchmen that would stand on the city walls and they'd look out over and just wait. Is Assyria coming to destroy us? We know that this foreign power is kind of ransacking and pillaging and defeating and conquering civilization after civilization. When are they coming? When are they coming? So the watchmen would kind of get up on the city walls and they'd watch and they'd watch and the nighttime would come. And the nighttime is when the most kind of vulnerable places were, the moments where they were going to be attacked, the biggest moments of fear. And they were waiting for the morning because when the sun rose, it meant another night passed in peace. And so they're waiting for the morning. He's saying as much as a watchman is waiting for the morning to come, that's what our souls are waiting for, the Lord. We're holding on to the Lord. We're clinging to him. We're waiting on his person and his promises. I think this idea of, of waiting on the person of God became uh, really clear to me through this psalm uh, almost a little over 12 years ago. Our oldest, uh, when my wife was pregnant with our, uh, with our oldest son, it was our first child, we had, you know, a couple years been praying to get pregnant, finally got pregnant, huge answer to prayer, and she went into labor at 28 weeks. And, uh, and there was a chance we were going to lose him, and I remember Psalm 130 erupted onto the scene of my life. Out of the depths, I cry to you out of the depths. I would cry. We'd sing a song about this. I would just, night after night, out of the depths, we'd cry to you, Lord, pay attention. We need you. We need you. We need you. And this line in verse 5 just was, was significant for me, but it didn't break in until a friend shared with us, uh, I think it really it was a really powerful thought for us. And she said this. She said, God's not in the business of dealing out grace for your imagined future. Like you, you sit here and you think, what would happen if? What would happen if? What would happen if we lost our child? What would happen if things went wrong? What would happen if all these things happened? Like all the pain we'd feel. And she's saying, God's not in the business of dealing out grace for your imagined future. So you imagine what would life be like if? But this isn't real. 
right? This is imagination. This is future. This isn't real. And so God's not meeting you with grace in your imagined future the way he will meet you with grace in whatever the real future is. And it's where this phrase just stuck in my mind has been something I've hung on to in the places of fear and, and anxiety about the future is that the surest thing about tomorrow is that the God of grace will be there. The most certain thing about tomorrow, about next week, about next month, about four years from now, about a decade from now, no matter what your life looks like, no matter what twists and turns, unexpected experiences, disappointments and failures, joys and triumphs, no matter what happens, the thing you know most certainly is that in that day, the God of grace will be there and his grace will be enough. He will be enough. He will be there, even if it's the worst possible outcome, His grace will be there and his grace will be sufficient for you. The presence of God will meet you like the presence of God has met person after person, community after community, generation after generation with his faithful, steadfast love. He will be there. And so you can hope in circumstances and the next stage of life and the next sort of like lifestyle change you want and a new job and a new church and a new friend group and a new family or whatever it is and you can just hope all of this was different. That may or may not happen. You know what will happen tomorrow? The God of grace will be there. He's ready to meet with you. He's ready to satisfy you in the morning with his steadfast love. He's ready to be there for you like a portion that's sufficient for you. That you could say, whom have I in heaven but you? And what is there on earth that I desire besides you? Even if my flesh and my heart failed, you'd be the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And the strongest, most faithful, most resilient disciples of Jesus had learned the secret of this kind of hope. I think about the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. He's in prison He's already appeared before Caesar uh, once. He's had a trial, and, uh, and now he's about to have another trial. The outcome of this one is going to be his execution. He's going to be beheaded. And he's writing a letter, his final letter, before the end of his life, pretty sure that the end has come. He's kind of feeling a sense of he's run his course, he's run the race, and it's about time for him to go be with Jesus. And so he's writing a letter to Timothy, one of his apprentices, and he's telling Timothy, he says, at my first defense, no one stood by me. The first time I stood up here after having all these people that I had led to Jesus and walked with with faithfulness and we'd seen God do these things and meet us in this, when I finally stood in this moment of vulnerability and real danger and pain, nobody stood by me. Everybody left me. And he says this, may it not be charged against them. The Lord stood by me and he strengthened me. That the presence of God in a moment of pain and disappointment led Paul to this place of peace where he didn't feel like he would need to get angry with his friends and pay them back and how could they do this to me? He didn't have to do that because he wasn't looking to his friends and his community to provide the kind of faithfulness that God alone can provide. And it freed him up to be gracious and loving and free. He could face death, the potential and eventual loss of his life with a sense of joy and freedom because his hope was in the presence of Jesus. He found a joy there. Do you know that if you increasingly can find through your own life and the pain and the trials of life the ability to push away your hope from the objects and the outcomes and the circumstances and find joy with Jesus, you have a freedom that is stunning. A freedom that is stunning when you hope in the presence of God. But not just the presence of God, the promises of God. It says, in his word, I hope, and what he had promised. You're holding on to these promises. So often we, we have this idea of hope as generic optimism, right? Like, I think things are going to turn out all right. You know, that was kind of a phrase that I used a long time in my life. I'm like, yeah, it'll all turn out all right. I remember planning our wedding with my wife. We say planning our wedding. And, uh, and 
I said something like, oh, it's all going to work out all right. And my wife's like, that's because I'm going to work it out all right. You know, like, uh, it's like, it doesn't like passively work out all right. You know, people have to do things. And, uh, and I just remember like, I just had this like, yeah, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. That's not biblical hope. That's generic optimism. But biblical hope is also not a baseless belief that God's going to make all your dreams come true. Like God's out there like, I can't wait to make your dreams come true. Like a Disney movie. Like, this is not what he's like. But he's made some really stunning promises. He's made promises like, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's made promises like, I'm with you always. He's made promises about his grace that will be sufficient for you. He's made promises that even in the most painful moments, that he is working within you to cultivate something that is more precious than anything you could ever gain or acquire in this life. And he's made promises that he's going to come again and he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to remove sin. He's going to make all things new. And all of the pain you experience in life, all of the setbacks, all the disappointment, all of the losses, all of the grief, all of the suffering will feel light and momentary compared to the weight and the eternal weight of the glory that he has in store for us. These are the promises that we hold on to. So when life takes a left turn that you didn't expect, when you have that failure in your work life, when that relationship falls apart, when you don't get that relationship you're longing to have and you were hoping that this would be the relationship finally, when your family gets that stage that you thought, once I just get to that stage, it's all going to be great and there's new trials and new dynamics and you feel like, man, is life always going to be this hard? Maybe. Maybe. But the God of grace is there. He's sufficient. He's working within you in the midst of the pain and the difficulty to cultivate a resilience and a joy and a hope that's deeper than the sort of things that we can sort of like surround our life with. And he's building in us a hope, not just in his presence, not just in his working in the midst of these things, but a hope in the resurrection life. And that has been a Christian hope throughout the ages that when we live in a world that's full of health and education and opportunities, we can lose sight of the importance and the necessity of the resurrection hope that Christians have been able to endure pandemics, wars, striving, schisms, which is a big word for, you know, church-wide splits, right? Massive pain, natural disasters, famine, because their hope in the presence of God, in the purposes of God, in the midst of suffering, and in the promise that Jesus is going to come again and make it all new. He's going to restore all of it. And all of that pain will yield a weight of glory that became for them something to hang on to. And that's hope. And when you can put your hope in God, in his presence and in his purposes, you're free now to enjoy family, friends. You're free to enjoy your job. You're free to enjoy culture. You're free to enjoy recreation because you're not trying to squeeze out of them what they can never give you. So we're not asking to live as sort of like kind of like humdrum people. This leads you to be joyful people, hopeful people, that you can love your family and you can experience and kind of experience the pains and the disappointments, not as these derailing, crushing things, because we're not asking our family to fulfill us in those ways. You can go to your job and you can have setbacks and the work environment can be a little hard and it can't be everything you wanted it to be, and that can be real, but you can find joy and meaning in using in the midst of this broken world your life to contribute to human flourishing and the common good. You can go into friendships and you can build friendships with new people and you can know they're not gonna, they're gonna disappoint you in ways. They might not respond in certain ways that you want to and there's probably gonna be some tension and difficulty and some of them might not last, those friendships. That doesn't have to make you shrink away from friendship altogether because you're not asking your friendships to give you what God alone can give. Like Paul, hey, may not be charged against them. The Lord stood by me. 
I care about them. It gives you the ability to experience these things. So I want to read as in our closing here this last section from this chapter on hope from C.S. Lewis because to me, I think this is a stunning, stunning line um, that, that sort of sets up in my own life a sense of purpose and a mission statement uh, for, for my life. And so I'm going to read this. This is what Lewis calls the, the other way forward. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's a such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's a such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's a such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they're only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. And this is like the mission statement of my life. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. He's saying when you experience in life or in marriage or in family or friendships or job or culture these like sense of joy and goodness and light, like something that just lights your heart up, good, good. That doesn't mean grab onto that thing as if it's your ultimate hope. Let it arouse within you a longing for the God who's going to come and Restore all things so that experience of joy will be your eternal experience. Instead of trying to squeeze out of them something they can never give, let them lead you to a deeper hope and a deeper in God. Taste and see through those things that the Lord is good. See the beauty in the world. Love it. Live into it. But on the other hand, also live with a sense of gratitude. Live with a sense of joy and gratefulness as we continue to live through this life as people who can walk through the pain and the discouragement, who can taste and see the beauty and the goodness, and who can live with a sense of thrill, that we live in a world where God is with us, God is for us, even in pain, he's working in us, and he's going to come again and make all things new. And when you can hope in that God, in his presence, and in his promises, you are free. And you're really, truly free. And that kind of a life shines light in the world that the world desperately needs to see. Let's pray together that God would help us. Jesus, we need you now. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us as a community to put our hope in Jesus. Like we sang before, I put my hope in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope and sure foundation. He'll never let me down. That we would be people who allow the disillusionment and the disappointment and the pains in this life lead us to a deeper hope in you. And so would you set us free as a community? And would you reveal to us the areas where we've put our hope in unhealthy things? Uh, Where we feel disillusionment, would you revive in people a sense of passion and purpose that we can find joy with our family? We can find joy in our friendships. We can find joy in our job. We can find joy in the city while we receive those things as gifts, as foretastes, as echoes, glimpses, signposts of the joy that you alone can give. And so would you help us, Holy Spirit, even now. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 
Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.